Well, let's remember that in the history of humanity, they reckon some 22 civilizations have collapsed. And if society is decaying, we ask, what about the religious life of the nation? This is not immune from decay and declension. Fewer people attend churches, fewer people accept basic Christian beliefs. Sometimes, sadly, little discernible difference between the moral standards of Christians and non-Christians. And these thoughts are reflected in a 19th century hymn that we're going to sing later, Abide With Me. Some words in that hymn say, change and decay in all around I see. And if that was true in, 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 19th, in, in 19th century Victorian England, how true is it today? And that same hymn gives the answer, O thou who changest not, abide with me. We see civilization changing, but we worship one who does not change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So in that hymn, Abide With Me, we see the problem that we're addressing and the answer. And that's what we want to look at tonight, Satan's opposition and God's presence. The Church of Jesus Christ is under attack, and both from the inside and the outside. Internal decay and external attack. The internal decay is no new thing. No, it's not a new phenomenon. We could go back to the prophet Jeremiah who was very unflattering about the religious leaders of his day. He says, and I quote, the prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. And again, the prophets are, are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. And Jeremiah goes on, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And coming forward to the New Testament church, the apostle Paul uh, lamented that fierce wolves would arise within the church. Jesus warned of wolves in sheep's clothing in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And it happened. Towards the end of the first century, we have pictures of the state of the church. In, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have messages from the risen Christ to seven churches in Asia Minor. 
and these seven were representative of all churches for all times, and we see what the risen Christ said about them. The church at Ephesus, what a wonderful church. It had, it had Paul there and Apollos there and uh, many others. It had uh, John ministered there, the Apostle John. They certainly had a, a, a tradition of very good preaching, but something was wrong. The activities were there. The meetings were there. But Christ's verdict of them was that they, their love had declined. They'd lost their first love. Perhaps their love for God and their love for each other and their love for those outside of their fellowship. And if we read um, another of those seven letters to Laodicea, there was internal decay. That was materialism. This was a church that was rich and very, very poor. Spiritually poor, but financially well off. One commentator I read called them prosperous paupers. And that sums them up. They were taken by materialism. But there was also external attack on the church right from the beginning. There's been resistance to the Christian message and severe persecution. Jesus told his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so it happened. The the book of Acts records how early believers were persecuted. Saul of Tarsus was one of those doing the persecuting. Stephen became the first martyr in the Christian church. At times, the Roman Empire was vicious with persecution from emperors Nero and Domitian, for example. And towards the end of the first century, Everyone was required to say, Caesar is Lord, and to burn incense to him. Non-compliance led to death. And let me give you one example. February the 23rd, give or take a day, in the year 155, there was an old man who was asked, to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. He refused. He was no other, than, in fact, than the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, the bishop. He refused, and he said, and these are famous words, eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? and Bishop Polycarp was burned at the stake. Now, this brings us to the, uh, Peter's first letter. This was addressed to suffering Christians. The repeated theme of the book is that those who are 
suffering as Christians should be full of hope because they experience the joy of salvation. And I want to focus on a few words from, uh, from verse 15, where it says, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now, the very specific content for those words is those who are suffering for righteousness' sake and the believer's response to that. Verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Christians who, who, who are suffering in, in, intensely and the comforting message of God's word through the apostle Peter is have no fear of those who are troubling you. The suffering may be physical, it may be torture, deprivation, death. And this is true in many parts of the world. Will that happen in this country? But whatever happens, there is opposition to Christ. There appears to be a sustained and intensifying assault on biblical principles to those who promote them and obey them. It seems that the attack comes from politics, from philosophy, from academia. Morality is under attack. For example, teenagers sometimes face colossal peer pressure to conform to drug abuse or an immoral lifestyle. Some may lose jobs or promotion because of a stand for truth. This is happening today, just as it has happened constantly throughout history. So what do we do when we suffer for righteousness' sake. And we, we can extend the thought because we, we will have suffering in common with other people. Poverty, ill health, bereavement. There will be suffering through no fault of our own, suffering that is common to, to humanity. How do we tackle this? What, what, what is it? What, what, what do we do? Our text tells us in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. These words of Peter are a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 8. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. And what the apostle is telling us is that we are to honor Christ. The world around is ignoring Christ and persecuting those who follow him. And it goes on to say we are to honor him in our hearts. This prompts the question, what does it mean by the heart? Verse 
The heart is the home of the will, of the intellect, of feeling. It governs our actions. And as the wise words in, in, in Proverbs tell us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So Peter is urging something that is inward, our hearts, to honor Christ in our hearts from, from the spring of life, from all that we will and think and feel and all our actions. And yet the human heart is certainly not all that it should be. Back to Jeremiah again, he called the heart desperately sick. But of course, we have the New Testament revelation, the new covenant, the experience of knowing Christ. Paul said to the Ephesians that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So that's the key with, with Christ in the heart, dwelling in there by faith. So, as our text says, that, that we regard Christ the Lord as holy. What are the implications of this? How, how, how do we do that? We, first, we regard Christ as holy by putting a full trust and confidence in him. And that is the opposite of being troubled. And this is not a mere intellectual assent. It's a very, it's a very practical thing, practical consequences. And the essence of the message is that this is not an outward show. But what is outward must stem from an inward reality. And the implications are with trust in Christ, we are calm in troubles. In the specific context of our verses refers to persecutions and tribulations. But we can, we can extend this to all fears and problems that crop up in daily living. And Peter later on in, in this first epistle extends the thought Chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That is the key, casting everything on him, not only the persecution, but the, 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 the daily anxieties, casting them for he cares for you. And that, that is the message the, the care and love that our Lord Jesus Christ has for us. I've been studying the letters to the seven churches in Revelation recently, and every time the message of the risen Christ, Christ says, I know, I know, I know your stresses, I know your problems, I know your difficulties, I know you've been faithful in such and such a matter. I know, I know. That is the, that is the wonder of this message for a Savior who knows. 
If we fear God, there is nothing else to fear. How do we apply this? I think the first thing is to look outwards. Look at the circumstances. Look at what's troubling you. Look at the fears, whether it is opposition because of your Christian witness or whether it is other problems that are common to everyone else. List them, think about them. The key is to get these, to express these in your own mind, to be fully aware, fully conscious of them, and bring them one by one to Christ. And he says, I know. I care. I have the answer. I know. So look outwards. And then the next stage of the exercise is to look inwards, to the heart, the mind, and the emotions. How are we in tune with the will of Christ? This needs submission, confession, humility. And it also needs that we, we must abide in Christ. That was the theme of the, of, of the gospel message about the true vine. We abide in him and he in us. So we must abide in him, keep in close contact with him. And you know, this is, on reflection, a continuation of the Easter message. We, we've seen the Easter message, the message of the resurrection. We've seen how the resurrected Christ met with the disciples. And then after his ascension to heaven, he, 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 is, he is promised to be with us. So this is the, the glory of Easter, that, that Christ arose bodily and there's a man in heaven, and he knows our problems, and he makes intercession for us to support us. So we, we look outwards, we look inwards, and immediately we look upwards to our Lord. We submit, and then petition and praise and wonder at his goodness his grace, his unmerited goodness. But you know, it doesn't end there. We've looked at looking outwards, looking inwards, looking upwards. And this faith is a personal thing. But it is personal, but it is not selfish. It's for me, yes, but that, it doesn't stop there. We, we, we look outwards, we look inwards, we look upwards, and then in, uh, uh, we, we, we look around. We look outwards again. There are people there who, who don't believe. There are people there who may never believe. There are people there who may be um, persecuting us. But you see, if you look at the text, um, 
If, if, you, if you look at the text in the bulletin, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. It goes on and says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, the hope that is in you. See, it doesn't just stop with me and my experience and my relationship to, to, to Christ. Having, having looked upwards, we then have to look outwards and be ready to give, give a message to those who want to know who want to know about our faith. And this is the, the, includes so many things. It includes love, that the love for God overflows in love for people, even those who are persecuting us, following the imitation of Christ. Father, forgive them. To those who had persecuted and tormented and, and killed him painfully. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that was the, also the policy of, of Stephen, the first martyr. He prayed for forgiveness for, for those who were assassinating him. So our faith is, is personal. It's a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, abiding in him. But it's something that, that there should not be selfish. It's something for sharing. Be ready. And the climax is the promise of Christ, where he said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the beautiful words of Peter that we've mentioned, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Let us pray. For the closing prayer, I want to reflect on a, a hymn uh, by Wesley, which sums up quite a lot of what we have said. Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels thy blood so freely shed for me, a heart resigned, submissive, meek, my dear Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, where Jesus reigns alone. A humble, lowly, contrite heart, believing true and clean, which neither life nor death can part from him that dwells within. A heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. Thy nature, gracious Lord, impart, come quickly from above, Write thy new name upon my heart, the new best name of love. Amen.